There is so much that I could say right now. I mean, I could exalt God's faithfulness, which is great and greatly to be praised. I could move earlier in the service and offer thanks and build vision about what was so generously shared by Fitzroy and by Tone. I could take all this and I could relate it to some good news that I will be sharing down at the end of the service on behalf of the elder board. But right now, I want to get into our text, Genesis chapter 32. Please turn there in the Bible. It's the story of Jacob wrestling with God. It's the story of grace going deeper into Jacob's life, deeper into his heart, deep enough that Jacob is finally bested by God. He's beaten. He's outdone. He's broken. He's gracefully broken. This text here, Genesis 32, verses 22 to the end of the chapter, echoes in so many places. As you will see, every time that you hear the name Israel in the news or read it on a website or uh, come across it in a conversation, every time you're being taken back to this text, this is the origin text of that name Israel. God fights on its behalf. That's what Israel means. This text echoes across Scripture in dozens of passages. Hosea 12, for instance, has an explicit reference to this this scene. Uh, There are others, though. I I was just reading earlier this last week Psalm 63, and I came upon verse 8. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. And that line describes the most intense moment in this scene. In this scene that we're going to read, Jacob wrestles with a mysterious man. It's God, as Jacob realizes by the end. And Jacob almost beats the mysterious man in the wrestling match. This is God in his amazing, forbearing condescension and humility. But then the man, God, simply touches Jacob's hip and it dislocates God in his power. Jacob is beaten, but he then doesn't let go of God until he gets a blessing. My soul clings to you, Psalm 63, verse 8. Here's a cryptic drawing that captures that desperate hold of Jacob's. But let me also point out that this text echoes in human hearts. It it is intensely personal. Jacob is changed here. This is the watershed moment in Jacob's life. This is the moment when God's grace, which Jacob has already experienced, goes deep enough to define him, to mark him. And I want that same grace of God to go deep deep enough into your heart to define you, to mark you. That's why we're in this text. So in a moment, I'm going to read it, but let me just set a little bit of background. Jacob has spent 20 years out of the promised land in Padan Aram. That's northeast Syria for us today. He's been working for an uncle. Jacob's gotten married twice. He has children. He has livestock. He has wealth and blessings unmatchable. He's now returning to the land of Canaan. 
And he is doing so, as he says in verse 9, at God's command. Let me read to you Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Let me just stop there. The Jabbok was a, a, a tributary stream that flowed into the, uh, the Jordan River just above the Dead Sea. And the Jabbok was often considered a boundary line for Israel. So he's crossed the Jabbok. Verse 23. He, Jacob, took them, the family, and he sent them across the stream along with everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? There he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his now dislocated hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word. I came upon this uh, humorous little piece written a while back, but it sounds like it could have been written yesterday. Let me read from it. In church the other Sunday, I was watching a small child who was turning around and smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling or spitting, humming or kicking or tearing the hymnals or running, rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. But finally, his mother jerked him forward. And in a whisper that could be heard anywhere, she said, stop that grinning. You're in church. And with that, she gave him a smack on his hindside. And then when the tears rolled down his cheeks, she added, now, that's better. Isn't that a parable? Too many people think Christianity and they think joylessness. They think chiding. They think, and I hate to put it this way because of my lovely wife's name, they think Karen. I mean, that's the current meme of of an older woman budding into other people's lives and telling them what to do. Here's how the Babylon Bee, a, a Christian satire website, put it. Okay. I mean, ask people what they think of when you when you say Christianity, and they'll say Karen. 
finger-wagging chides, strident conservatives butting into your life, gay haters, racists, people who could care less about COVID-19. Now, let me be quick to point out, there are plenty of churches and Christians that do not deserve any of those labels. But there are plenty that do. Plenty of churches and Christians who, in Mark Twain's unbeatable line, are, quote, good in the very worst sense of the word, unquote. All this is ungrace. All this is living life without the unconditional love of God undeservedly given. And having that love sitting at the center of your soul, defining who you are, freeing you to love whatever and whoever comes your way. Let me remind you of some of the marks of ungrace that I shared in last week's sermon. Pettiness, unnecessary quibbles and fights. Refusal to forgive. Refusal to admit wrong and and change. Demandingness, you have to do it my way. And here's the thing, which is so important in our education and knowledge-driven culture. You don't just move from ungrace to grace by figuring things out, by learning something new, by coming up with a, with a nice, neat five-step plan. No, no, no. You move from ungrace to grace when God intervenes directly, personally. And in this text, God intervenes. His grace confronts and breaks Jacob. And God's grace then comes to define Jacob from this point forward. It's here that grace becomes the most important thing about Jacob. God's grace took this man Jacob, a God user like all of us, and turned him into a grace bearer. To put it in terms of last week's sermon, here is where Jacob's faith moved from an if faith, if you will do this, then I will serve you, to a a though faith, though this or that might happen, I still will always serve you. There are three places where God, where Christ, can go deep enough into your heart so that grace would then define you. So that grace would become your, your new name. I want to use this text to talk about those three places. And the first place is, is this. Christ's grace goes deeper in Jacob's aloneness. In this text, Jacob is alone and terrified. Uh, he... he has alienated his brother Esau 20 years before. I mean, Jacob cheated him. Jacob used him. And Jacob hasn't seen him since. Now Jacob's coming back home, and he's been told Esau is coming to meet you along with 400 men. This will not be a fun family reunion, Jacob is thinking. This will be civil war. 
And he's alone. At night, the text emphasizes his aloneness. Look at 22, 23, and 24. 22, you get classic, typical Genesis summary statement. That same night, Jacob arose and took his children, and he crossed the fords of the Jabbok. Verse 23 goes back and kind of gives further detail. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. So now you know that he himself is on the, on the, on the opposite side of the stream in terms of the geography. There on the south side of the Jabbok, he remains on the north side. And then verse 24, and Jacob was therefore left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day no one was there to help him as he as he wrestled with this man no one was there to to help him think through what he had done to Esau he's there alone with his fears and his memories and his shame and his guilt toward Esau he's there alone as he wrestles with this man and it's nighttime And it's not a New Jersey night. I mean, here in New Jersey, there is so much ambient light that you can barely see a crescent moon. But this text is 1800 BC, a Canaan night, where you you can't see your hand in front of your face. Jacob has no idea who this man is. Could it be Esau? Could it be Esau's hitman? He just didn't know. But it's God. It's Jacob wrestling with God. Jacob figures that out in the course of the text. Down at the bottom of the text, he calls the place Peniel. I've seen God. It's Jacob and God alone. No one else. That's how defining grace comes. One on one. Intensely personal. Don't get me wrong, it's important to have life, in life to have uh, community and, and family and small groups and friends as, as you move forward in faith through life. Uh, these are all so important, uh, but, but for grace to really go deep at a certain point, at certain points, it has to be about you and God alone. Back in 2007, God's grace went deep in my life. I mean, I was alone. I had something go wrong with the vision in my left eye. Whatever it was, it it happened while I slept, while I was sleeping, what I call a delicious sleep. After a week of waiting and tests and more problems with my vision, a, a diagnosis finally came. There had been an interruption of blood flow to my optic nerve. Just a momentary brief one, 30, 45 seconds. And as a result, I lost a portion of the sight in my left eye. But as the doctor was kind of finalizing all this, what really got me were the five words that he said. He said them very quietly. He was right up close to me. He was looking into my, my left eye through, through the, that flat scope, you know, right there, kind of half breathing on me. Couldn't do that today. <laughs> half breathing on me. And he says to me five words. These things come in pairs. And I said, well, what do you mean? Are you saying that it might happen again in the same eye? And he says, Well, no, 
So I said, well, what do you mean? Are you saying that it might happen in the other eye? And he said, yes. And then he went on to say, and it's likely to happen sometime over the next six to eight weeks. And that started for me a a two-week period of nighttime dread. What do you mean, I'm saying to myself, what what do you mean, God? What do you mean that I could, could fall asleep and lose my sight? I was terrified. I'd fall asleep and I would immediately, as soon as I kind of could consciously make that choice, I'd wake up again. People prayed and people loved and people supported me, but in the end, at two in the morning when you wake up, it's, it's just you and God alone. God, his, God pushed his grace deeper in those nighttime sessions. I'm with you unconditionally. Your body is in my hands. Your, your vision is mine. Where are you alone right now? Where is it just you and God, just you and Christ? And how is Christ pushing his grace deeper? In Jacob's aloneness. Second place, Christ's grace goes deeper in Jacob's loss of control. But Jacob always had a plan. <laughs> Throughout his story here, he's, he always has a plan. Like here, he's been told Esau's approaching with 400 men. So first of all, he prays, uh, verses 9 through 12. And he prays a, a good prayer. It has some good humility to it. I mean, look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love that you've done for me, God. But it's also a a prayer of control. Right at the beginning of the prayer, he says to God, listen, you're the one who told me to come back here. And down at the end of the prayer, he says, I got to remind you of a promise that you made to me. (laughs) He's, he's, He's controlling God. After prayer... He launches a plan to to soften his brother with lavish gifts, verses 13 to 21. Jacob always had a plan. He had a plan to get Esau's, Esau's birthright. He had a plan with his mother to get Esau's blessing. He always had a plan. He was always in control until here. And in an intense scene of wrestling, Jacob is beaten. All night they wrestle. And God, the mysterious opponent, allows Jacob to stay even with him, to almost win. But then at the last, God just touches, verse 23, he just touches Jacob's hip and it dislocates. Now, when I was a teen, I never wrestled. I had no interest in it. Two reasons. (laughs) Two reasons. Too close, too sweaty. But I do know that to wrestle, you need your hip. And you need your hip because you need your leg. And you need your leg because you need your foot. And you need your foot to to pivot and to push and to, to, to force yourself back against your opponent. With just one touch, God beats Jacob. He's no longer in control. All his life he's tried to be in control. But now he is bested. You and I don't like to lose control. But if there hasn't been already 
there will be a time and another time and another time when you will no longer be in control. And that is when God's grace can go deep. To be successful with God meant that Jacob had to be defeated in his control, in his self-reliance. And it's the same with us. Kent Hughes, preacher and writer, says this. We want to be part of God's plan. But alas, we make our own plans. And then a crisis comes through where God lays his hand upon us. Life becomes dislocated and out of joint. And we have an appalling sense of our own incompetence and weakness. That is the great hour, the hour of grace. Because from there on, our walk is never the same. Where is God wrestling with your sense of control? And let me point out, did you notice that from this point on, Jacob has a limp? That's something to think about. Third place. Christ's grace grace goes deeper in Jacob's longing for the blessing. I love Jacob's cry here in verse 26 after his hip has been dislocated. God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now remember, this is Jacob's moment of weakness. All his physical strength has vanished. All his material blessings mean nothing. All his family blessings are unimportant right now. In this moment of weakness, out of Jacob's heart comes the truth. The truth of of his heart and the truth of every human heart. Jacob has always been searching for the blessing. The blessing is a secure and defining statement of personal value, of a meaningful future, and of unconditional love. And God, in sheer grace, gives the blessing to Jacob. He does it in part by giving him a new name. You're no longer Jacob, the deceiver. You're now Israel. God fights for you. God's on your side. The text plays with that name. You fought with God, Jacob. But from now on, now on, your name is Israel. God fights for you. He's on your side. And that gave Jacob immediate security in relation to Esau and the approaching 400 men. But that statement went deeper. It's the blessing that Jacob was looking for. It's the blessing we all are looking for. For here God gives to him again personal value. God's on your side, Jacob. Secure future, he will always fight for you. And unconditional love, he will always be on your side and fight for you. You know, my time is up. More than up with this sermon. But my pastoral heart for you is that the Spirit of God drive home to each of you in some way how in Christ you have the blessing. And that in Christ the Holy Spirit wants to push that blessing deep, so deep into your heart that it defines you. In Christ you have personal value despite your brokenness 
Christ loves you. And he died for that brokenness so that you may have a, a new name, a new identity, a new life. In Christ, you have the blessing of a secure future. Christ will carry you home to his presence. And finally, you have in Christ the blessing of unconditional love that nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, please, press into our hearts in our aloneness, in our, our loss of control, in our longings for the blessing. Press into our hearts the blessing, what we have in Christ. I pray in his great name. Amen.